being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong today i'm joined by someone who should need no introduction the author journalist and researcher douglas valentine he's probably best known for the book the phoenix program america's use of terror in vietnam as well as two monumental works of history documenting the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and the DEA, as well as the book The CIA as Organized Crime, and many more. Thank you for joining us today. That's my pleasure. I hope I could contribute something. Oh, of course, of course. Now, at the expense of sounding corny, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that you and your work have inspired me, just about everyone in this part of the internet that we hang out in like thank i just want to say thank you so much for your work it has meant so much to us well that makes a big difference to me you know um i don't know that i actually ever thought i was going to make any money i think there was a part i think there was a time when i thought i was going to you know move into a mansion and have movie contracts and be hanging out with woody harrelson and stuff like that but you know, that quickly, that sort of faded <laughs> out pretty fast after, you know, a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, the uh, Phoenix program book, I mean, weren't they even talking about a Pulitzer for that? That's right. When I, um, there was a fellow named John Prados. I don't know if anybody here ever knows about him. He wrote about 100 books about the military and the CIA, and he was um uh, uh, when I handed the book to William Morrow, the publisher, they did what publishers do, and they farmed it out to somebody who knew about the subject. Mm. And they gave it to John Prados to, to, to review. Prados was already working at that time with the National Security Archive and had written a couple of books. And he wrote back to them and he said, um, this book fills in all the blanks about... Um, mm. Vietnam history that we don't didn't know about the CIA. I mean, he said it's just it just fills in everything. He said, but I don't understand why. But it ends abruptly in 1968, and it turned out that the editor had I, I had sent the manuscript in two boxes, and they'd lost the second box. Oh, geez! <laughs> they only sent the first box to products. You know, so it was the uh, publishing industry can screw up anything. You know, <laughs> so then I had to send them the second box, and and, and Prados read that, and he was even more impressed. And he told the editor, a guy named Adrian Zakheim, that you know this was a breakthrough book, and the editor, who didn't know anything about <laughs> Vietnam or the CIA, just took. Prados at his word and said um, he was like most editors in the big publishing world. William Morrow's a big publisher, mm -hmm. you know, one of the biggies. And all he knows how to do is promote a book. I don't know what the subject is about, you know, so they farm it out to a guy like Prados. And um, he had me down to the office and they told me they were going to give me some money, you know, and the uh, he said, this book is so good, we're going to nominate it. I'm going to, you know, submit it to the Pulitzer Prize people. And, um, you know, I, like I say in the book, Pisces Moon, in which I described the, described the ups and downs of my career and what happened, um, how a lot of this stuff happened, then it, that was in like... Um, late 1989 and then in 1990 they we signed their contract and things you know everything was looking very bright and then in october of that year they had finished putting together the galley proofs and they sent a galley proof to the new york times and the new york times assigned it to morley safer and morley safer who was a bosom buddy of william colby the director of central intelligence who'd sort of been my um, um, rabbi, you know, the guy who had made it possible for me to write the book. Mm -hmm. and they were so offended by everything I said in the book that they morally safer at the, the New York Times just destroyed the book. And, and my editor, 
withdrew it from nomination for a Pulitzer Prize, and they did not spend a dime promoting it. Mm. And you can't get a book sold unless the publisher advertises. You know, they got to put advertisements in in, um, the New York Times or, you know, all over the place. So a book sells in proportion to how much money the publisher puts into advertising, you know, I, mm-hmm. and how many books they print up and whether they send them out to, to, you know, bookstores and stuff like that. So basically I thought my writing career was over, mm-hmm. you know, that I would never get another book, book published. I remember at the time after that review came out, Peter Deal Scott said to me, you'll never get another book published in the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was just a, uh, the death, you know, and it's funny because I'm on social media <laughs> and I read about people, you know, like this jerk, um, I mean, a complete idiot, um, Russell Brand, <laughs> you know, complaining about being censored. You know, the guy's got 10 million followers and, he, and he's a millionaire and he lives, in, you know, hangs out with Woody Harrelson and, 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 and he's complaining about censored. Well, you don't know what being censored is really about, yeah. unless you have the New York Times uh, write a half-page ad destroying your book because you criticize the CIA. You know, I mean, and that yeah. really, you know, that was not that's that's censorship, and that's how censorship really works. So it's kind of amusing to me to see a lot of people complaining about censorship nowadays who are wealthy and famous and stuff like that. I mean, it's just not what's, what it's really all about. Anyway, so then I had already signed a contract with the BBC mm-hmm. and to be a consultant for them on a, a, a documentary they were making about the CIA based on the Phoenix Program book, and in which I, and I had interviewed close to 100 CIA officers I, which nobody does. I mean, that just does not happen. Right. But the guy who had been very important in the Phoenix program, William Colby, and had become director of the Central Intelligence Agency and had actually defended the Phoenix program before Congress and became the person most associated with it. He had introduced me to a lot of CIA officers, really senior CIA officers, who gave me the PhD level course on how the CIA works. And uh, once I started talking to them, all the CIA officers who had been involved wanted to put in their two cents too. You know, so everybody started talking to me and I got a rat-a-tat going back and forth between (laughs) different factions. And one guy would put down another guy and tell me about the mistakes he made. And I, and, the, you know, the fuck-ups he'd done. And then I'd go back <laughs> to that guy and say, well, Joe said you did this. And he'd go, oh, yeah, well, Joe's a complete idiot. And he'd tell me everything that Joe had done wrong. You know, and so it just got down to this very basic level where all the people in the CIA who had been involved in Phoenix and all sorts of other things were telling me everything they knew. And I put it all in the book, which you're not supposed to do. You're supposed mm-hmm. to be like Bob Woodward or, or uh, Evan <laughs> Thomas or these guys who are official chroniclers of the CIA, you know, and you're supposed to present them as heroes. And even if you talk about Tim Weiner or, you know, Weenie or whatever his <laughs> name is, even if you talk about the mistakes the CIA makes, you have to sort of do it in this way that, that makes them seem like the best and the brightest, you know, who had just been misinformed by somebody and, and made some human error, you know, as opposed to being the homicidal maniacs they are. <laughs> and, and and really no better than you or me or anybody else. You know, I mean, they're just people that came off the street. They may have come out of Harvard or Yale, or they may have been the son of some industrialist or media mogul, but they're still just like you and me. <laughs> and there's really nothing special about them. They're not the best and the brightest. They're like anybody else. And all of a sudden they find themselves in these positions of immense power and their emotions get the best of them and their prejudices get the best of them. Their political alignments get the best of them and they do all sorts of stupid, greedy, 
you know, horrible, terrible things. And because they're in the CIA, they're protected. You know, and so anyway, I had written all about these guys and I had a whole list of like a hundred of them and BBC wanted access to that list of my sources. Mm. And so before this, before the safer interview came out, they signed a contract with me. And in, and in return for giving them access to my all the people I had talked to, their telephone numbers and addresses, so that BBC could then go talk to them, they paid for me to go to Vietnam and mm. set me up in a hotel. And they were going to pay for my hotel, and I was going to be a consultant for them on a documentary that they were making about the CIA. And everything seemed bright and shiny, you know, in the in the <laughs> spring and summer of 1990. I was being feted by BBC. They came to my house, you know, and they told me what an amazing person I was, you know. And and then the the safer interview came, uh, review came out in the Times in November, and BBC decided they didn't want anything to do with me anymore either. Could you explain to my listeners what that was? It's a it's a book review. That uh, I never actually talked to Morley Safer. Sorry. Mm-hmm. When the book, when a book like the Phoenix Program is going to be published, the publisher sends a review copy, the galley proofs, mm-hmm. to the Washington Post and the New York Times, so that before the book is actually hits the the, the stands and goes out to the bookstores, the New York Times publishes a review. Mm-hmm. And the review comes out like a week or two before the book. And and that way it's like promotional and it's, um, you know, they can tell what people, the function of the New York Times and our culture, especially 30 years ago, was to tell the intelligentsia what to think mm-hmm. and what was good and what was bad and what was politically correct and what wasn't politically correct. And if the New York Times book review gave your book a good review, then every idiot in academia and in the media <laughs> saluted like good little Nazis and said, "Oh yes, this is the best book I've ever read." <laughs> and the, you know, and and the the New York Times agrees with me, you know, and this guy is an intellectual genius, and and they all just follow in order. Uh, I mean, that's the function of the New York Times book review is to tell the intellectuals in America what to, what to do and how to think. And because Safer gave the book a bad review, well, then everybody fell into line in that intellectual Mm. academic set. You know, the Times gave it a bad review. Therefore, it's a bad book. Therefore, we won't sell it. Therefore, this guy's not worth listening to. Uh, It's just that simple. Okay, it's with the growth of social media and the internet, the New York Times' influence has been diffused to some extent. But back in 1990, when it came out, it was it was just death for the book. Okay? Uh, things have changed over the years. And so that interview came out in October. And I was supposed to go to Vietnam as a consultant to Vietnam, uh, BBC, in early 1991. And... Um, I was going to stop in London where I was going to meet a couple of people who were um, part of what we called in those days the research network. People mm-hmm. who were doing research outside of the um, what the New York Times and the Washington Post and academia was telling you was, was you know, um, orthodox and what should be promoted. And, and uh, you know, pretty much it all started with the Kennedy assassination and research into that, but in opening up the idea that the when people started seeing the how the CIA actually had a a lot of secret control over foreign policy and what po- politics in the United States, and people started looking into that, and a whole network of us existed by the by 1990. You know, Bob Perry was part of it. He had been. Uh, you know, I re- the thing had sort of blossomed with Iran-Contra, mm-hmm. and uh, I was in, involved in all that, and I was meeting these people, but a lot of them, some of them who I was going to meet in London before I went to Vietnam, people like Jim Hogan and David Monroe, who actually put me up in an apartment mm-hmm. in London, 
These people had been involved for about that point, 10 or 15 years, you know, and now I looked up to them, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, uh, I won't mention all of them by name, but they're in the book Pisces Moon. And and I, I got to see some of them and, and talk to them and meet them in person. And um, they accepted me into this crowd, into this group because of of the Phoenix Program book. And they, they just also wanted to know, how did you get all these CIA guys to talk to you? You know, I mean, nobody had done that before. So, so I was accepted. And in those days, it was just a small group of people, really. Mm. There was a bunch of us, and we knew who we were, and we knew who the frauds were. <laughs> now you can't tell anymore. Who were the frauds, can I ask? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, you know, there's... The, it, it, you figure it out for yourself. You know, I mean, you gotta, you gotta um, have some. You, you gotta be centered, and if you're not centered, it doesn't matter what anybody says to you. So center yourself, and then figure it out for yourself. Okay, mm -hmm. but uh, one of the, the guy I actually stayed with, David Monroe, had gone into Cambodia with John Pilger in 1979. And they had filmed what was going on in Phnom Penh. And it was just this like incredible documentary that I'd done. And, and Monroe told me what to expect in Vietnam and um, told me what, you know, what to expect about working with BBC and stuff like that. And then I met Jim Hogan, who had written Spooks and Secret Agenda. And um, uh, Monroe has since passed away, but you know, I'm still friends with Hogan, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and uh, I met Hogan in London and, and he was one of the, one of his books was one of the reasons I was going to Thailand to interview a guy named Tony Pashepnik. And um, uh, uh, people, my next book was going to be about CIA drug dealing. And so after I had been a, a, a consultant with BBC in Vietnam, I was going to spend two weeks in Thailand and talked to some people there and, and Hogan helped me out, you know, gave me some advice. I mean, these guys, Monroe and Hogan have been around the world. This is my first time going, you know, and, and mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I wasn't an ingenue. I met all these CIA people and I knew a lot of stuff, but I hadn't really, I had never been to like Vietnam or Thailand and, and they were helping me. And while I was in London, Vietnam, uh, the BBC came and let me know that um, I would not be doing any work for them in Vietnam. The others, they had hired a bunch of, BBC is like CBS or CNN or Fox News, you know, I mean, they're, they're an outfit, uh, establishment outfit that, that has an orthodoxy. And once the Safer interview came out, once the book was out, a whole group of CIA officers that they had hired as consultants on this documentary that they were making had risen up in unison and said that they would all quit if I was allowed <laughs> to be a consultant on the film because I was such an evil, horrible guy and I had such, such awful, untrue things about the CIA in my book. <laughs> and so they told me, because I had a contract with them that I could go to Vietnam and they would, you know, that I would fly, they would fly me there and they would put me up in the hotel, but I, there would be nothing for me to do while I was there. Uh, I mm. was just going to be on my own. Now, and then they also asked me to carry $10,000 cash to Vietnam to the crew. So they wanted me to do things for them. Mm. Um, one I had never seen so they they brought it over to Monroe's apartment where I was staying and uh, a banker bag, a hundred one hundred dollar bills. I'd never seen so much money, <laughs> and they asked me to bring it to the crew in Saigon. You know, so they they still they were still exploiting me and they wanted me to do things. But anyway, that turns into a thing in the book. Yeah. So you got to read the book. I'm not going to tell you what happens, but that turns into a whole thing. Currying money for a BBC. And then 
uh, I got to Saigon, interestingly enough, on the plane ride into Saigon, I met a woman I, I got sat next to on the Vietnam airplane, a uh, commercial airline, a woman named Lillian Morton. I mean, it was just a strange coincidence whose husband had actually been in the CIA. <laughs> and we had this very interesting conversation. And it was one of these very strange things. Strange things kept happening to me on this on this trip, and that was one of the strangest things. And I got to Vietnam, and of course they wanted the money. They met me at the airport, and they wanted the money, and I wouldn't give it to them until they took me to the hotel. Mm -hmm. And it turned out um, that they hadn't registered me at the hotel. They wouldn't let me stay at the hotel where, where the rest of the CIA guys were staying. Because <laughs> the rest of them, Frank Snap and um, uh, Tom Polgar, who had been a station chief, and all these eminent CIA guys that, you know, they, they wouldn't even allow me to stay at the hotel where I was, where they were staying. So they put me in a hotel by myself. Oh, I don't speak Vietnamese. Uh, I had no idea what, you know, I mean, it was like, felt like Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz, you know, <laughs> and, and, and I had no idea what was going on. And they, I wouldn't give them the money until we got to the hotel and it turned out that they hadn't registered me. They were trying to screw you. So I told them I wouldn't give them the money unless they did it. So they did it reluctantly. And then I took $300 off the top of the 10000 10, and I said, fuck you. Go <laughs> you do what you want. I'll do what I want. And um, then I had a bunch of adventures in, in Vietnam, okay, which... I recount in the book. Uh, uh, I had promised a Vietnam veteran I know who was in prison for, uh, he'd been traumatized in the war. He'd been an army ranger and had been involved in a lot of atrocious um, behaviors. Um, you know, all my interviews with the CIA guys involved discussions of atrocities and mm -hmm. really horrible things that that people do to people um not just like dropping bombs on people like the b-52 people do in vietnam which of course is its own kind of massive atrocity but the sort of up close and personal atrocities that were invo involved with like a u.s army ranger outfit that this guy Jack was had been part of in Vietnam. You know, where they would ambush people and then uh, uh, take the body parts of the people that they had killed and put them on the, the wire around their camp, you know. Mm -hmm. And just really atrocious stuff. And when Jack came back to the United States, he joined a motorcycle gang and started dealing drugs. This was the days of bunker vets. Uh, you young people don't remember it, but there was a lot of traumatized veterans after the war. And, and um, uh, it was a whole different situation than it is now. Mm -hmm. And anyway, uh, Jack had murdered a rival motorcycle gang drug dealer and been put in prison. And I had met him and he had written to me when I was investigating Phoenix one of the many Vietnam veterans I interviewed as well as CIA officers. And he said he knew I was going to Vietnam and he asked me to go to this mountain in Vietnam and go to the top of the mountain and to say a prayer for him and all the other victims of the Vietnam War. And so when I got there and I had nothing to do but for BBC, I sort of made that my mission. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. And I had $300 to help me get there, you know. And so all of that is recounted in the book, too. And I spent a couple of days in Vietnam. I had a big fight with BBC. I met interesting people who took me around the city. And um, then I had to go, then I went to Thailand and to interview CIA officers who had been involved in the drug trade out of the Golden Triangle, which was 
Laos, Burma, and Thailand, because I was writing my next book, which turns out to be The Strength of the Wolf, mm -hmm. about um, the CIA's involvement in international drug traffic. And I knew, had written to a couple of guys who I knew had been involved in the drug trade, CIA officers who had been involved in the drug trade, and two of them had, three of them had agreed to talk to me. So after I, I left Saigon as a non-consultant to BBC, <laughs> I stopped in Bangkok on the way home, and I got off the plane and I stepped into a military coup. That's so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> the hotel I was staying at was where they were keeping the the president under 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 arrest. <laughs> and the, the hotel was surrounded by armored personnel carriers and tanks. And I'm thinking, what's going on? Gee, this is strange. <laughs> and everything was. I, I remember riding up the elevator with with these soldiers with automatic weapons and saying, "Boy, Thailand's a strange place." <laughs> I got to my room and I called this one guy. And I was going to interview Tony Pushefni, Anthony Pushefni, who had been in Laos for 12 years. And um, uh, I called him to make sure that the interview was still on. He, he, he lived up near Laos and I was going to take a plane up there to interview him. And, um, you know, because I had interviewed Colby and so many other CIA guys, he was quite willing to talk to me. I had the credentials by that point. And um, I called him up and he said, where are you calling from? And I said, the Mandarin. And he said, no, you know, that's where they're keeping the president. <laughs> they got every phone booked in that place. And he was laughing about it. <laughs> I said, well, is the interview on? And he said, yeah, sure, come on up. Just be careful, man. That's a there's a coup going on and everybody's <laughs> watching you and they're watching me. And, and, and so I stepped into a lot of intrigues in, in Thailand and I met Tony Pushefni, who had actually been the um, model for Colonel Kurtz, mm. who's a composite in the, in the movie Apocalypse Now. He is the model for Kurtz after Kurtz goes up the river and and there was another guy named Colonel Robert Rowe who was the model for this guy, Colonel Kurtz, before he goes up the river. Anyway, all that's in the book, too. So I had all these different adventures. I met Poe. He told me about the CIA's involvement in drug trafficking, how it all worked, who was involved. And uh, then I went to Chiang Mai and I interviewed a guy named Bill Young, William Young, who Al McCoy had interviewed. For Al McCoy's book and um, the politics of heroin, and um, uh, Bill Young added more information, and and uh, uh, then I came back home and and uh, spent a few more days with Monroe, who told me a lot about Cambodia. So I write a lot about Cambodia in the book Pisces Moon as well. And uh, then I came home and I had all the information for this book. But I hadn't actually become a person who could write authoritatively a memoir. So I had to sort of wait 30 years before I was actually to write, able to write a memoir. You actually have to have a career and a body of work that's worth writing a memoir about. And so I based my memoir on this, this trip that I took. And I used it as a literary device to be able to get into current events nowadays and to track mm -hmm. the history of the CIA's, all of America's imperial adventures from the beginning up until now. Um, the role of the CIA in all these adventures and uh, misadventures um, and how we got to the point where we're at today with this, with the election of Donald Trump, a person who was totally unqualified to govern 
Palm Beach, Florida, let alone the United States of America, <laughs> and how an idiot like him could get elected president and what the dangers are to the republic and how it all traces back to uh, the 75 years of, of military and CIA propaganda that we've been inundated with as a nation and how it so totally warped our view of reality uh, along with this internet spectacle that we now find ourselves in that, mm. that the public could be so deranged and so out of touch with reality that some, um, you know, uh, neo-fascists like Trump could get elected with the support of half the population, you know, mm. some 75 million people who don't care at all whether what he tells them is lies. He just represents something symbolically to them that they can relate to. And he frees them in an illusory, spectacular way or they believe that he frees them in an illusory, spectacular way from the constraints of everything of this uh, error of uh, confusion that we're in. And he brings a certainty to them in, in a way, even though it isn't real certainty, it's illusory certainty <laughs> that fills this gap in their lives that makes them support him. And that's, you know, the sort of... Uh, the overall purpose of the book uh, to explain the intricacies of psychological warfare, mm. how it's been constructed over the last 75 years, and how now it's all kind of blown back upon us. And we find us in this situation that we're in now where nobody knows what's up and what's down, and, and what's a fact and what isn't a fact, and how there's really no way that I can tell anybody, any of your listeners or anybody, how to be able, like you said to me, name the frauds, you know, well, you got to go figure it out for yourself. And if yeah. you can't figure out the difference between a fraud and somebody telling you the truth, there's no hope for you anyway. You know, and, and, and all these things you have to do as an individual. Yeah. And I use this memoir to try to show people that you as an individual can do it, but it takes a kind of a lot of work. Yeah. And I was, I had a lot, a lot of things happen to me that don't happen to normal people that put me in a position where I was able to experience, to actually talk with hundreds of CIA officers and drug agents and actually see inside and see behind the veil so that I could make these kinds of determinations based on experience and, mm. and knowledge and that merely listening to Russell Brand <laughs> or Glenn Greenwald <laughs> or Max Blumenthal does not prepare you to be able to make these distinctions and it does not provide you with the knowledge you need to navigate the world nowadays. And I provide, try to provide an alternative way of approaching the world to what all these, these you know, kind of uh, social media uh, celebrity stars are presenting to people, and so of course it's not. It, it's about as well received as as the Phoenix program was. You know? <laughs> I mean, because the people who who are are the um, uh, fulfilling the role of what's ideologically and intellectually correct today are about as accurate as the New York Times was 30 years ago. So it's the same situation. It's just different players and different people establishing the baseline. <laughs> yeah, no, that's very well said for sure. Can I ask you about uh, the role of astrology and, uh, and spiritualism in your research? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, when I took off on this trip, I had a friend, a woman named Helen Poole, who gave me a daily horoscope that would I could look at every day to see what my horoscope, you know, what was going to befall me that day. Mm -hmm. And over the 30 years of since then, when I wrote the book, I decided to incorporate that horoscope into the narrative. 
I found it as to be have a couple of serve a couple of functions as a writer. It's a literary device. Mm-hmm. Right. One thing it enabled me to do was to uh, address my own psychology, to analyze myself psychologically mm. without like, uh, you know, to, to answer the question, why would these CIA people talk to you? Why would you as an individual want to spend your life investigating <laughs> people who do these horrible, terrible things? You know, I mean, it's the dark side of the American psyche. The CIA represents the secret dark side of our collective psyche of what it means to be an American. So using astrology in a Jungian way, Carl Jung was a the uh, famous psychoanalyst who um, is uh, given credit for developing what's called depth psychology. He had said that the horoscope, the zodiac, and the 12 signs of the zodiac are a map of the human psyche. Mm. That the 12 signs represent basically all the components of the human psyche. Okay. Go look at them. You know, the different signs represent different things. Mm. And for young, this was sort of an ancient, the, you know, the idea that people from three, 4,000 years ago were just as smart as we are. And had just, you know, like the Greeks who wrote um, Antigone or, you know, the Euripides and, and, and Sophocles, that these people had, had insights into the human psyche, psyche as deep as we know now, that they, the things, the things that they're, they were thinking about, we have been thinking about for thousands of years, and that ancient wisdom is sort of collected in the zodiac. And that's what Jung thought would be a way for us, for people at the time, after the Industrial Revolution. And um, uh, even, you know, like uh, Marx talks about alienation from the means of production. How, you know, Charlie Chaplin, who was a communist, um, has a movie made a silent film about this guy with a wrench and he's caught in the gears of the of the machinery you know and people are in modern society were losing touch mm-hmm. with their basic psychological principles that govern humanity and they were being that industrial society and modern society with all its technology was preventing us from understanding who we really are and that for young the zodiac represents this ancient wisdom about what it simply means to be a human being and what your connection is to the cosmos. And um, uh, and, and there's a spiritual aspect to that, you know, which has nothing to do with Christianity. You know, and patri- according to Jung and Freud, patriarchal religions with their dogma had done more to stifle our understanding of who we are psychologically than or as much damage to our understanding of who we are as human beings as industrialism or as uh, Mm -hmm. technology, um, um, you know, uh, separate, alienating us, like Marx talked about, from the means of our production and our relationship to nature and what we really are. So I use the astrology in a book as a way to try to cut through that crap, to talk about myself as a person who represents all these different features of what it means to be a human being. I do not present myself in a heroic way in this book. (laughs) You know, I make fun of myself. And and uh, uh, I stumble through the book, just like I have stumbled through life. And I don't know the answers to the questions like, why did all these CIA guys talk to you? I mean, it just happens. But astrology becomes a way of trying to tell people that you are a whole human being. 
you have all these qualities that you can find represented in the zodiac in your own mind, in your own composition. And, and you don't have to subscribe to Christianity or Hinduism or um, Marxism in order to be a real human being. You just have to find some way to get in touch with all these different facets of your life and, and not limit yourself or your imagination. And by putting astrology in the book, I was giving a finger to the establishment <laughs> and saying, you can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me how to think. You know, um, uh, Christian nationalism is a big part of Trumpism. Mm -hmm. And they want to ban books. You know, so it was especially a big finger to them and all the patriarchal religions. And I was, you know, when I read about Vietnam and Vietnamese culture and writing the Phoenix Program book, I learned that the that the people there believe in astrology, you know, and the communists did nothing to try to prohibit people from um, uh, playing around with astrology or finding some, you know, folk. It's part of their folklore, their folk culture. Same in China, you know. Mm -hmm. India, for example, has a, a state astrologer, you know. So religions around the world are not as dogmatic as they are here in the United States or, you know, like with the Spanish Inquisition, you know, I mean, they don't, or Judaism, which considers astrology heretical, you know. Um, so I, I wanted to be able to relate to other cultures, and other cultures are more open in, the, in, in terms of understanding that that whatever your political or religious ideology is, you're still a person, and you can still seek a, a connection to the cosmos. And and um, uh, and so this kind of folklore theme is also part of the book. And I talk about um, the folklore in Vietnam and in China and in. Laos and how it's important to people and how um, uh, it contributes to their own feelings of themselves as human beings. There is no astrological state. You know, <laughs> astrology doesn't have a state. It doesn't have yeah. politics. Um, it doesn't have an army. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of a way to... Uh, get out of all these constrictions that's that any particular society or culture put on you and to get in touch with the like young said psychological components of your own psyche and so uh i use it to in, in, in that literary way to try and tell people that if you keep an open mind you can connect to the cosmos. You can find magic in your life. Things can happen to you. For example, I had no way of getting to this mountain that Jack Madden, the soldier, wanted me to go to. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that when I was in Saigon, I met a guy who actually was born the same day as me, December 12, 1949. He was pretty, he came was protecting me from a money changer who was about to beat me up. <laughs> and he said, well, while you're in Saigon, why don't you spend your time with me and my in-laws? And so, and this happened on the first day I was in Saigon. So BBC, excluding me, was actually opened the door for me to actually find out how Vietnamese live. And mm. we hired a car, and I went with him to his in-laws' house. And the mother who of his wife-to-be, turns out she wanted to go to this mountain too, the same mountain that Jack had asked me to go to. Mm. And so, um, and it was part of her folklore. She was, a, 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 it was funny, I was in their house and they had a picture of Jesus 
uh, on the wall, and next to Jesus, they had a picture of Buddha. And, and yet, at the same time, she worshipped the goddess that lived on top of this mountain. And she wanted to go to the top of this mountain to pay her respects to the black, it's called Nui Badam, the Black Virgin Mountain. And she wanted to go there as part of her folk religion. And it turned out that, you know, there was a spiritual purpose. I had made a sacred vow to this guy, Jack, to go to the top of this mountain. And the people that I coincidentally met with wanted to go there too. And um, it just felt to me as if it was a spiritual thing. Synchronicity, yeah. Yeah, synchronicity. You know, Jung said that he didn't believe in astrology, and I don't believe in astrology, but opening up your mind. Mm. Astrology can open up your mind so that synchronicity you can experience synchronicity in your life. And this becomes a real example of it in the book. The experience I have of meeting these Vietnamese people who accept me into their home and our joint wish or belief to go to the top of this mountain. Mm. You know, and it's a woman, God, goddess that lives on top of this woman. It's, no, it's not patriarchal. It's not Karl Marx, a statue of Karl Marx. <laughs> it's not a statue of Donald Trump. You know, it's it's a spirit of nature, uh, something that uh, that evokes in you a connection of people to uh, their past and their ancestors and nature. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing that I'm, one of the things I was trying to get across in the book is that it's this, connection to humanity that will save us, mm. not any particular ideology um, or religion. It's something bigger. And obviously, nobody will listen to me when I say <laughs> And frankly, I don't care. I don't care anymore whether you listen to me or not. It worked for me. That happened to me. I know it's true. Mm-hmm. And you can believe it, or or you can go spend fifty dollars and listen to Russell Brand Brand <laughs> on stage and dress up like Elvis Presley and talk about how many girls he slept with, you know, last month. Eighty girls, you know, uh, you know, this sort of misogynistic patriarchal nonsense that goes on. Or you can actually try to find some real connection to humanity and mm. people. And that was that's why I used introduced astrology into the book as a mechanism to try to open up people to that understanding. So let me ask you probably the most requested question I had from my listeners, and I know you talk about it in the book, but like can you explain how it seems like William Colby like the context in which he like maybe used you for his own purposes or like basically the question is like, how did you not get killed for writing the book, the Phoenix program? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's a part of that's a mystery. Colby had his own agenda. Um, it's really hard to describe or explain to people what it's like to be within the CIA and to operate in that realm. But, you know, I spent 20 years doing that. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, people within that that sphere, not all of them function the same way. Mm-hmm. Some people are good at it. Some people are bad at it. There are specializations within the world of espionage. You know, and some people never get even as involved as I got. But as I started talking to more and more people, I started understanding across this whole range of specialties and and uh, uh, levels of experience and involvement. I started understanding more about it than the CIA officers themselves, mm-hmm. who each as an individual have their own individual experience. And so as they want, they began to want to talk to me 
because I had this more general understanding than even some of them. And mm -hmm. I started to understand it in this psychological way and this humanistic way. And they were interested to hear what I had to say about it. And I think that Colby, based on the book I had written about my father, mm -hmm. a prisoner of war in World War II and involved in a military cover-up, that I had written about that in such a way that Colby felt intuitively that I would understand and that I would be able to grasp the complexity of the CIA in all its various uh, specialties and and uh, 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 features and and the range of people that are involved. You know, people seem to, you know, I mean, I, I, I see. Well, I won't get into that, but at the same time, Colby wanted to resurrect his own reputation. And um, uh, there was a split within the CIA. Mm -hmm. People in social media and around that I see, you know, tend to think of the, the CIA as some sort of monolithic organization, yeah. like my friend Ed Curtin, who likes RFK Jr. You know, they say <laughs> CIA killed Kennedy, you know. I mean, it's just so nutty. I mean, it's just so crazy. I mean, they all got together and took a vote. You know, I mean, there were people, I met people in the CIA who loved John Kennedy. And if they knew about any of their, their fellow CIA officers who had been involved in a plot to kill I said, John Kennedy, they would have gone and killed them themselves. You know, I mean, it, it's just nutty stuff like that. People have ideas about the CIA, which I can't which would take me 10 interviews with you to try to explain. But there's a complexity to it that Colby thought I would understand. But at the same time, he knew much more than me. And mm -hmm. he was referring to me to people initially who would help to resurrect his career. Mm. And his reputation within this community of CIA officers. These were his people that were aligned as part of the Colby faction. Mm. And there was a Colby faction that was battling the Helms faction at that time. Helms was known as the man who kept the secrets and had actually been indicted. And, and I, th I can't remember if he was given some jail sentence, but he refused to tell the secrets to Congress. And Colby had actually gone out and... Um, revealed a lot of secrets, what were called the family jewels right. at the time, which involved, which he had leaked to Seymour Hirsch, some information, and, and which began the myth of Seymour Hirsch. Seymour <laughs> you know, and I would talk, you know, and he knows some of the same guys I know. But he never got involved at the, the level I got involved. You know, I mean, uh, he has some sources who exists in his head nowadays, <laughs> but but he didn't, you know, I mean, didn't have this kind of access. Although Colby had given him at the time, you know, this information about the chaos program and the CIA's domestic uh, spying on people as <clears throat> part of that domestic uh, uh, program. You know, and Colby was known to be this person who had revealed secrets. And when I got to him, he was making a sort of transition in his personal life into somebody who wanted, who still wanted to have influence. But he had to exert his influence in a sort of this sort of backhanded way of like introducing me. And at the and he had a couple of different agenda items as an individual, as a person who wanted to affect policy, as a person who wanted to affect history, many, many, many things, reasons which, you know, um, a, a woman named Jennifer Van Bergen actually did a review of Pisces Moon, 
where she compared his astrological chart to mine. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> if there was some astrological reason why <laughs> he, he picked me and why these things happen. But of course, it's it goes, it transcends all that, and I don't know it. But he thought I would understand the totality and the complexity of the CIA, which I believe that I do. But communicating that to people, to people depends on the person that you're trying to communicate, communicate it to, having an, a background and knowledge and the innate capacity to understand complex issues, which I very rarely find <laughs> in people. You know, so I sort of spend a lot of time just talking to the wall because nobody wants to... The, the, the complex go into the complexities of all of this to try to answer it. They want a tweet. They want somebody to give them an answer to everything in a tweet. You know, but if I if you wanted me to actually explain all these complexities, we'd have to do a series of 30 interviews. Yeah. You know, and then it would relate on whether the, the people are actually going out who listen to this and reading the books that I say, well, you gotta read this book in order to be able to understand this specialization or this feature of the thing. Or, mm -hmm. you know, you got to understand how the Justice Department is organized and operates. You have to understand how the Treasury Department is organized and how it operates. You have to understand how the Federal Reserve came into existence. You have to understand what the Foreign Policy Association was and how it evolved. You have to understand Protestantism and the difference between Catholicism. You have to understand hundreds of things to understand how the CIA operates and how it's organized and how it affects society. And people don't want to do that. They want simple explanations, which is why an idiot like Trump is so successful, because he gives them the simple explanation that they want, which has a symbolic meaning to them, which is somehow symbolically freeing them from the constraints of, the, of this technological, ideological world that we live in, which covers up our humanity and, you know, just buries our humanity in this technology the way Charlie Chaplin portrayed it 100 years ago in a silent film of a, of a guy with a wrench being caught in the cogs of a machine. You know, well, it's, it's now, if you read Guy Debord, and mm. the society of the spectacle and the comments on the society of the spectacle, which he wrote in 68 and then again in 88. You begin to understand these things, but it requires all of that before you can begin to understand the role of the CIA in our culture and society. And so there's a lot of work that every individual has to do, and, and which people just don't want to do. And they think that, you know, um, all they have to do is go to the mountaintop and ask the guru, what is the meaning of life? And the guru will say to them, you know, asparagus, you know, and mm -hmm. then it, the light will go off and, and they'll come down the mountain knowing that all they have to do is grow asparagus and study asparagus and they'll understand what it's all about. Well, it's actually very hard and very complex. And for me, it was a lifetime's work. And I finally decided that you know, a couple of years ago when Trump appeared on the stage, that it was time to try to write something, write a memoir, which would symbolically and using literary devices, uh, I, I feel the book is my best writing, that I really know how to write at this point, that I could get across in a way how lost I was and lost I still am. And yet, at the same time, a person who's lost like me of applying themselves and, and keeping an open mind can understand something about what's going on, at least to the point of being able to de determine who the frauds are. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, there were models for me. Mm. Joseph Conrad, Heart of Darkness, um, Herman Melville, Moby Dick, those were books that were in the forefront of my mind mm. when I was writing those. And you have to read literature, not just nonfiction, but you got to read. 
you know, I mean, people would read Joseph Conrad now and find them dull. People would re read Moby Dick and they find it dull. The, you know, it's the language isn't really reaching out to them. So I tried to write this book in a modern way that it would have the same impact as Heart of Darkness and Moby Dick. Mm. You know, um, I'm not saying I'm Captain Ahab. <laughs> but if you look at my astrological chart, <laughs> you will find Captain Ahab in it. Ah. All right? And and Captain Ahab was after Moby Dick, this great white whale. And I was after the CIA. You know, and I'm not saying I'm any better than any of those CIA guys I interviewed. Or that I don't have my own, that the darkness isn't in me. It is. It is. It's in everybody. You know, and Trump just gives everybody now a chance to let that darkness out. But mm. it's an undirected darkness that's consuming everybody and not in a good way. And it does not, he does not instruct people in any way how to control this darkness that he's releasing from them and letting them come out and infect and consume and envelop our nation with hatred and division. He does not say, this is just a part of your psyche. And yes, it's there, but you've got to learn how to control it. You know, I mean, he doesn't do that. He's not a leader in that sense. But you have to understand it's there. And mm. just because you pour it out on social media, on Twitter, doesn't mean that it's doing any good or helping you in any way. But you do have to realize that it's part of you as well and that you're no better than any of these guys who are in the CIA and that if you were in the same mm -hmm. situations they are found themselves in, you would be doing the same things and you're capable of it. Mm -hmm. And that it takes a lot of hard work as an individual to be able to recognize these things within yourself and to be able to control them in yourself. And this is part of the process of being able to determine who's telling you bullshit and who isn't. Mm. So how do you incorporate all this, you know, information into one book? Well, Astrology became a literary device for me to try to. And like I said, I don't care whether you get it or not, or whether it helps you or not. It was my way of doing it. Yeah. Well, I think it's absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for writing it and taking the time to explain it with me today. Yeah, it's a big subject. <laughs> Definitely. I think people are really going to enjoy it. I know I loved the book, so definitely. Okay. <laughs> you can get it at Trine Day or on Amazon. If you actually put up a graphic, you can put up a picture of it. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for the opportunity to explain it.